it is, it's, not, um, it's not an obligation to, uh, to give charitably. It is not an obligation to support uh, missionaries. It is a privilege uh, to be able to partner with, with folks who are um, involved in efforts to take the gospel to the nations. So Miguel and Jenny, I forgot to look where you are sitting, but uh, wherever you are. Oh, hi guys. Uh, we love you. You're special to, uh, to us and to us. And so thank you for that, for that update and for being here. It's their anniversary, by the way. They're uh, going to go spend uh, some time in Colorado uh, if Miguel can work up his courage to uh, brave the snow. A person's last words can be significant. Um, you, it's a glimpse into someone's soul when they know their time is short. Here's a few famous last words. Uh, founding father John Adams, his last words were reported to be, at least Jefferson survives as he looked back over that time of the founding fathers and his friend and then rival and then friend again, Thomas Jefferson. What he didn't know is that Thomas Jefferson died earlier that day. Uh, so, but they straightened that out uh, later, I assume. John Adams with the Lord and Thomas Jefferson, eh, I don't know. Uh, it can show the kind of pain someone is in in their life. Ulysses S. Grant, his, he suffered from a very painful throat cancer. His last words were reported to be, there was never one more willing to go than I. And then the man uh, known as the Buddha, I'm glad he is known by Buddha because I can't pronounce his actual name. But the founder of Buddhism, this is, I got, I checked this, double checked this on a Buddhist website. Uh, his last words to some monks that were his students were these words, work hard for your own salvation. That smacks to me of someone who was worried he had not done enough. And I will tell you just by way of contrast, Whose last words would you rather follow? The man who said, work hard for your own salvation, or the man who said, it is finished? Well, this morning, we're going to read David's last words. King David. We are, we're in the middle of the last section of the books of Samuel, um, and I mean that literally. We are at the center of of this last section. Uh, the, the last section of 2 Samuel isn't chronological, not amongst itself and not with the rest of the book. It's really easy to tell here because this morning we're going to read David's last words and then as we finish the rest of the book, we're going to read more words. So very obviously, this is not arranged chronologically here at the end. But these words that we're going to read this morning are in the center of this last section. Intentionally so. They're in the center of this way that uh, Hebrew is, the Hebrews often uh, arrange things. It's called a chiasmus. I'll save you the lecture. Just know this. What we're going to read this morning was intentionally like highlighted by our author as the most important part. 
What was so important about David's last words? What's striking and has to be part of the importance is David's last words aren't about David really at all, or at least not much. David, this greatest king of Israel, with this massive list of accomplishments, his last words were not how he wanted to be remembered and all of the things he had done. His last words weren't about that. But David was also this man with this massive list of failures. David had this massive list of people he had hurt. His last words weren't words of regret and sorrow for the things he should have done better, for the where he failed and all the people that he had hurt. His last words weren't about that either. David's last words, a thousand years in advance, were about Jesus. They were about this king, this Christ that God had promised David he would deliver through David's descendants. Let's read David's last words and see what we can learn about the the one they are about. 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're going to read the first seven verses of that chapter. It's, uh, It's poetry. It reads this way, Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's how David introduces himself. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The Rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for He has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured For all my salvation and all my desire will he not indeed make it grow. But the worthless or the godless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. Those are David's last words. They seem like kind of odd last words, don't they? What what can we learn from from those those things? That's what I want to talk to you about for the next 20 minutes or so. First, the first thing I want us to know about these last words is I want you to know that my opening premise is true, that these words are actually about the Messiah or the Christ. How do we know that 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 we just read is actually about Jesus. Well, first, we know they can't be about David. They're very obviously about a king. David can't be writing a prediction about how great he's going to be someday because he's mostly dead. He's dying. So they're not about David, but maybe those words then are about Solomon. 
the, David's successor. Those words aren't about Solomon either. Here's how we can know that. Uh, we don't read this in 2 Samuel. We'd have to turn to the next book, 1 Kings, to read this. But David had promoted or, or announced that Solomon would be his successor before David's last words. So if what we just read was a way for David to sort of pump up his son Solomon and get him off to a good start, he did him a real disservice by not mentioning his name. Because in first, excuse me, in first Kings, we'll learn not everybody wanted Solomon. There was a fight. So this is not about David pumping up his successor Solomon, or surely he would have, you know, said who that successor was. But more than that, here's how we know this is about the Messiah or the Christ. This is an example of predictive prophecy, and those promises or the prophecy is about something we talked about earlier in this book. I'll explain all this quickly. Prophecy in the Bible happens anytime God gives someone a specific message, some specific words that God wants that person to deliver to other people. Now we teach here that that's not a gift in the church anymore. God, God, can, God can do whatever God wants, but... Um, God will still do this at times with us. God will, through his Holy Spirit, put on our hearts, you should go see David and encourage David. Right? And in general, God can put on my heart to go give David. Some churches will call that prophecy. We don't. I call that go encourage your brother. <laughs> like, right? Uh, prophecy is write this down. Here's what I want you to say. Okay? David goes out of his way in the first three verses to make sure that his audience, as, as his audience, we know these aren't my words. These are God's words. This is, uh, the, God spoke this to me. I'm making this my official words, but the rock of Israel, God, these are his words. The Spirit gave them to me. I'm just passing these along. And when God gave prophecy to his prophets, many times they pointed toward the Christ, the Messiah. And then in verse 5, in what we just read, David makes sure we know that his last words, this is a prophecy or an oracle, and it's about this very special promise that God gave to David back in chapter 7 of this book. That's a very important story in like redemptive history, not just in this book. What happened back in chapter 7 briefly is this. David from Jerusalem, he looked at his house and he looked at the God's house, the tabernacle, the tent that held uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And David decided, I want to build God a house. My house is nicer than God's house. It shouldn't be that way. So he said, all right, I'm going to build God a house. God through the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, what makes you think I want a house? I've never asked anybody to build me a house. And if I did, what makes you think you'd be the right guy to do it? And then God really blew David's mind. He said this, not only are you not going to build me a house, God said to David, I am going to build you a house. 
And David said, but I've already got a house. <laughs> but God continued. He wasn't going to build David a physical building. He was going to build David a household. We would call it a royal family, like the house of Windsor in England or the house of Saud in Saudi Arabia. God said, I'm going to, to make a royal lineage, a royal family out of you. And David, from you, one of your descendants is going to be this special king who's going to reign over all of the earth forever and ever and ever. That's the house God promised to build David. And, and David talked about that house in his last words. That's what these last words are about. It's like David is saying, even though I'm about dead, my hope's not dead because my life's not about me. My life is about what God wanted to use me to do. And for David, the main thing was deliver the Messiah one day, the Christ. That special king God promised David just gets the title in, in Hebrew, Messiah. In Greek, Christ. Like different words for the same special king. So that's, that's how we know this last word poem of David is really about, uh, about the Christ, about the king. Now that we know who this is about, we can dig into what David said and, and, and what God wanted David to say with David's last words about what kind of king Messiah will be. This thing is a prediction about what kind of king the Messiah will be when he shows up. That's what David's last words are. And we're told first, David says, and this is really God's word, so God said, and David repeated, he, that special king, the Messiah, he who rules over man or mankind will rule righteously and in the fear of God. That's the first thing we're told about what kind of king the Messiah will be. He will rule righteously and in the fear of God, which means respecting God, which means not doing anything God would not want done. That's the kind of king Messiah will be. That's the kind of king Israel was always wanting. And it's the kind of king God told Israel before they were ever in the promised land they should look for. We've, we've read this a couple times in the books of Samuel, but this is from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses wrote this hundreds of years before they entered the promised land. Here's what God said to Israel through Moses. Listen to the kind of king God said Israel should want. He said, when you enter the, the promised land, the land the Lord your God has given you, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God said, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. And it's to be with him, verse 19 says, he's to read it all the days of his life so that he might learn to revere or fear the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Verse 20, he should not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites 
He should not turn from the law to the right or to the left. And then everyone will live happily ever after. That's the kind of king Israel should want. And to tell you the truth, it's the kind of king I want. And it's never the kind of king Israel ever had. David wasn't this kind of king, and he was the best one. We can go back through there and look at all the ways David messed that up. You should want a king who rules righteously in the fear of God, but not only that, he just wants to glorify God and then serve other people with his power. Not not be self-serving. Be others-focused. Now, when the Messiah shows up to reign, that's what he's going to rule like. That's what his government is going to be. What will it feel like when we have a government, not just a king, but his entire government rules over the whole earth and he never does anything that doesn't glorify God or benefit people? What will that feel like? Would you say that would feel refreshing? David's last words would agree. I honestly don't even need to set the bar that high. I just want like somebody to have a modicum of respect for other people, care even a little bit about what is right, and be able to string complete sentences together, and I'm good. But someday, it's going to be much better than that. His reign will be refreshing to the earth. Moving on in this poem of David's last words, he says, this king, the Messiah, will be, and I quote, as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. This is poetry. What's it going to be like when Messiah reigns righteously in the fear of God? God says through David, you ever live through a really dark scary, stormy night, especially in the ancient world when there's no electricity. And then the next morning, the sun finally comes up and it clears off. And you just feel safe. And you just feel like the fear is all gone. God, through David, says when Messiah reigns, that's what the, that's what the whole planet's going to feel like. It's going to feel like the fear is all gone The darkness has fled and we're going to be able to see the safety in which we now live. And and it's going to be, is anybody else ready for all the snow to melt? Okay. I'm so looking forward to when this snow melts and it starts to warm up, this place is going to look like Ireland compared to what it's looked like the last several years, right? Which is roughly the surface of the moon, right? It's go- I'm so looking forward to that. And that's like Southwest Nebraska under the curse, right? God through David says, when Messiah reigns, the whole planet's going to experience that kind of refreshment. It's going to have everything it needs to support human flourishing. It's going to be what God wanted this place to be all along. So, what's it gonna, what, what kind of king is the Messiah going to be? Well, he's going to rule righteously in the fear of God the way a king always should have. And 
that's going to bring refreshing to the earth. But it's not going to be all springtime and refreshing for everyone when Messiah shows up. Oh, no. Because he is going to bring judgment just as surely as he brings refreshment. Verse 6 in what we read. But evil men, the Hebrew word here is Belial. Your, your Bible might translate that evil or godless or worthless. Evil men, Belial men, are going to be cast aside like thorns, um, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron, the shaft of a spear, and they're, they're burned up either where they lie, but more, really probably better translated, where they go. For those that the Hebrew calls Belial, when Messiah shows up, the dawning of this new day will actually be the worst day ever. Because Messiah, King, will bring judgment. He will decide who gets to come in for all of the refreshment this planet is going to experience and all the perfection and who doesn't get to come in but gets cast aside like weeds, like thorns into the fire. Now, who would you trust to decide who gets in and who gets cast out? Who would be worthy to distinguish between who is Belial and who is righteous? Any, any king, any leader you've ever known? Not yet. Jesus because he rules righteously and in the fear of God, he will do that perfectly. He won't make any mistakes. It will take someone with the right character to make that decision. But how about this? When the king shows up and starts to make that judgment, what world ruler has ever been powerful enough to pull that off? To kill all the bad guys. Would it take a very powerful ruler to pull that off? It will. That's this, hey, thorns are ouchy. I don't know if you knew this. They're dangerous to handle. The one who is strong enough to gather all of the thorns, metaphorically speaking of the earth, metaphorically speaking of the earth and cast them into fire is someone who's going to have to have some serious strength pictured by a tool of iron, the shaft of a spear. Jesus will not only be strong enough to defeat all of his enemies, but he'll be righteous enough to do it correctly. And that's the oracle. That's the last words. David, God tells David, make these your last words. The Messiah is coming He's going to rule righteously in the fear of God. That he's going to bring refreshment on all of the earth. But he will bring judgment as well. The end, now you, may you rest in peace, David. Now, how do we know that that poem's actually about Jesus? The New Testament is how we know. In this poem, this oracle, David's last words that we read, the Messiah is pictured as being like the sun that rises out of the darkness. Did Jesus ever say anything his, in his life about being the cure for the darkness? 
He did. Jesus consistently claimed, this is not the most famous prediction of Jesus, but it's an important one. And Jesus claimed to be this king. He said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Another time, Jesus called himself the light of the world again, and then he healed a blind man uh, as an object lesson. While, I, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle, he applied the clay to this man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so that man went away and washed and he came back seeing. Jesus Christ is the one who is the light of the world by which we see the truth. Um, second, Jesus promised, the New Testament promises that Jesus will bring refreshment and renewal to the word when, world when he returns. In Revelation, uh, Jesus' best friend John is given a glimpse of the end. And in Revelation, after the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes to reign, John sees this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Renewal, refreshment. That will come when Jesus returns. Another way Jesus points this uh, poem that we read today about himself is that Jesus also promised to bring judgment on the earth when he returns one day and he used agricultural metaphors to do so. In this poem we read today, the, the righteous are going to make it into the, the Messiah's kingdom. The, the thorns, the Belial, the godless people are going to be collected and cast into eternal judgment. Jesus said this, he, 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 he gave this story about, he said right now the wheat and the tares or the grain, the harvest and the weeds grow together. And then he said someday the tares, the weeds are going to be gathered up and burned with fire. That's how it's going to be at the end of the age. The son of man, that's me, Jesus said, will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see how some of the stuff Jesus said about himself is similar to David's last words? When he worried, they should be similar. They're about the same person. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see about David's last words, and it comes right here in verse five, where Jesus, or excuse me, where David said, "For for God has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire, will He not?" indeed make it grow. Do you hear how hopeful David's last words are right there? Do you understand what David said right there? David said, even though I've got like one foot in the grave, God has promises he is going to keep. And he's going to keep them to me. 
I am two-thirds dead, David said. But still, all of my salvation and all of my desires are not dead. He will, will he not indeed make those things grow? That's really good news. Here's what David said. And it can be true for us as well. David's like, there's some stuff I want to be saved from. This death I'm about to experience, I need saved from that. All of the sins that I have sinned, I need to be saved from those. The regret, the people I have hurt. God's going to take care of all that. But then David said, all of my desires, everything I desire, God is going to meet and exceed those things. Do you know that is true? All of your desires, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, all of your desires will be met and exceeded by God. Now you may have an exception. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Maxwell. If you knew some of my desires, you wouldn't say God's going to meet those. Because sometimes we have some desires that ain't good. But listen, underneath all of those desires are your real desires. And God is going to meet and exceed all of them. Maybe you have a desire to not have pain anymore. Physical pain, emotional pain. Now, can we make some bad decisions on how we try to mask and cover and medicate our pains? Absolutely. So we might have desire for sinful things, but the root of it is pain. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is going to meet your desire to end your pain. You, might, you have a desire to be loved, to feel significant, to feel desired. Can we come up with some sinful ways to make ourselves feel desirable, loved? Of course. So God is not in the business of meeting those sinful desires. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you meet him, that real desire for significance, to be loved, to be cared for, to be, is going to be met and exceeded. You have a desire to be good. You have a desire to be like enough, to be adequate. God's going to meet every one of those desires and exceed them one day. That's the kind of king we're going to live with. He'll do, he will still for all of eternity rule in a way where he does what God wants him to do, what glorifies God and what is best for other people like us. So, let's, let's land the plane here. That's what we learned about the king we're going to live like and become like. Now let's think about your last words. 
like David wrote his before he died. If you hadn't heard this sermon, if I just stopped you on the, on the street two weeks ago, and I said, if God told you you were going to die tomorrow, and tonight you had to sit down and write your last words, what would you have written? Would, what would you want your loved ones to read? Would it be a list of the things here, how, is how I want you to remember me? The list of the accomplishments that I have accomplished? If you are living for your legacy, I want you to know you are wasting your time. You are. Here's how I know. Three generations from now, everyone in this room will be so forgotten, no one will even remember enough to forget us. Like it's just over. I can prove this to you. You think of your, like, direct ancestors. You know your parents. You know your grandparents. Most of us know our great-grandparents. You go a generation or two above that, you have no idea what those people were like. You may know their names, and that's the ones that are directly related to you. Go back to that generation for the person who sits three rows behind you and two seats to the left and tell me everything you remember about them. You know how much you remember? Nothing. You don't know. That's where we are headed if the Lord doesn't come back. If I am living so that people are impressed with my legacy, that is a colossal waste of time. But maybe that's not what you would write about your last words. Maybe you would write about your regrets. What you failed to do. The people you hurt. The people who hurt you. Maybe you would have a message for them. That's a waste of time too. You don't have to walk around with that stuff right now. He can take that stuff from you right now. And I can tell you, he's going to wipe that away one moment after you are with him. If you, if you again, are a believer in Jesus Christ. It, your last words need not be about you. Because your life need not be about you. The only way to not waste your life is to not make it about you. And in fact, you don't even have the last word over your life. Jesus Christ does, whether you realize this or not. In some ways, the last word over your life will be either Harvest or thorn, sheep or goat, refreshment or fire. And then the, the, last, the last word over your life can be words like forgiven, mine, restored, redeemed, resurrected, His word over your life is the only one that will ultimately matter.
So why don't we live like his words and his thoughts are what matters right now in my life? One of the most accomplished human beings who ever lived, God intervened and made sure, listen, I want your last words not to be about your successes, not to be about your failures, but to be about this descendant of yours a thousand years from now who will be named Jesus because his name and his word and his opinion on your life is the only thing that will ever matter. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you again for your word, even the parts we can't make any sense of when we read it through the first time. Thank you that you have the last word over our lives. And that's either a comfort or terrifying. God, if there are those here today who have never decided to make Jesus their Savior, to place their faith that that only through Jesus Christ can I get to the Father, not through my righteousness, not because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. If there's someone here who hasn't decided Jesus is going to have the last word and I want the last word he has over me to be forgiven, mine, redeemed, restored, resurrected. I pray that you would work in their hearts to just place their trust and their faith that that what Jesus did at the cross, he did for them. That he's done everything it takes for them to gain eternal life. And God, as we look forward to the refreshment of eternity, for the righteousness of your kingdom. Help us to live right now like we're parts of the kingdom. Our eternity is not going to be about us. It's going to be about you. Help us more and more to live with an eternal perspective today that that the current and future and last words of our lives will be about Jesus who is our life. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us. Let's finish our time together.